you right now have a data science and AI background, you're going to bring a lot to the table that someone else didn't, right? Welcome to another edition of the Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports, past and present, future, today, uh, disruption, technology, media, all different kinds of things. We are here in January of 2024, the beginning of what I believe is our ninth year doing this podcast. I am Joe Favorito. Tom Richardson is my co-host. And here we go, Tom. Happy 2024, Joe. It's good to be back for our first show of the year. Gosh, and there's already a lot of crazy news hitting the industry. The, the one I've been following in the last 24 hours is the announcement between MSG and Yes. Yep. To do Gotham Game. Yes. Do you, do you, let's let's see how closely you paid attention, Joe. What does Game stand for? That's the acronym they're going with. I don't even know. I haven't had a chance to look at it that closely. It has historical precedent, as our guest knows. Gotham Advanced Media and Entertainment, G-A-M-E, which, of course, reminds veterans of the industry of MLB Advanced yeah, Media. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a pretty, really provocative announcement. Yeah. I, I'm anxious to see where that goes, but being involved in that world and the digital side as I am, this is a particular interest to me, and I'm really dying to see how that unfolds. But that's just one of many stories that hit the screen mm. since January 1. It's crazy. Yep, Marie Donahue exiting stage. Oh, yeah, I saw that news actually today. Well, I guess it was announced yesterday. Um, Portland Thorns being sold for $60 million, NWSL. Um, uh, um, well, the news you know, the news of this new NCAA deal with ESPN for the college which, championships. Which does not include March Madness. Very, very include important. March Madness, but as Abe uh, Madcor said on his uh, morning, uh, his buzzcast today, mm -hmm. He reminded us that it is now, as they say in the legal business, coterminous, these agreements with the men's March Madness deal with Turner and CBS, which suggests, as he uh, noted, that when that deal comes up, that's going to be the mother of all college sports media deals within, what, another eight years or so. Yep. So will um, we still be doing the podcast then, Joe? That's the question. We will, we will be doing it. Well, actually, what we'll do is we'll have our, our avatars being doing yeah. it. We'll be so, in the metaverse doing it. Right, so exactly. Or Farmville, wherever, yeah. whatever that means. So, um, yeah, lots of other stuff going on, obviously. Um, transition at ESPN, uh, transition at CBS Sports coming up, Super Bowl on the horizon, unbelievable, you know, once again, showing the power of college football for anybody who can complain that any of those four teams made it into the semifinals, good luck trying to complain. Amazing games, yeah. but opening up the path for next year for a seven and a half week, you know, festival of college football, which will have 12 teams involved. And the 13th team on the outside will be the one complaining at that point. Um, yeah. The farewell to the Pac-12 and right. what a farewell it was, given the fact that one of their lead schools now yeah. going to the Big Ten is in the championship game, which will be over by the time this comes out. Um, yeah, lots and lots, and it's just getting started. And speaking of getting started and looking forward, that's why our guest is here today. So, All right. so we have we are lucky, and his name actually for anybody who's listened to recent previous podcasts, his name came up when we were doing the Christian Matthews Formula One podcast because they had worked together in the 
former Washington Redskins, now Commanders uh, universe. Um, but our guest today, I will call him a futurist with a firm grip on how we got here. Um, and we have not yet really, Tom, talked about AI and how AI as a tool could potentially be playing into the world we're going into, mm-hmm. not potentially, will play into the world we're going right. into. And I think this will be both insightful, eye-opening, and really educational for a lot of people who are listening and hopefully even more than that. Uh, but Tripal Shaw, welcome to the Cusp Show. And the first thing I want, you know, that I had mentioned to you is we would love to have you take us on your career path as to how the heck you got here. Uh, so welcome to the Cusp Show, first of all. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled uh, for this opportunity. Um, sure. So my career, um, you know, I, um, I don't have a traditional sports background. Um, I have a computer science degree. Um, I actually started um, with specialization, um, specialization in 3D animation, which what led me to my first uh, media job at uh, the PBS affiliate in Boston, WGBH. Um, I was doing a lot of web development and worked for a web de- development agency. I was then at barnesnoble.com. I was teaching at Parsons. But I think in the sports space, just trying to fast forward, um, I landed at what was then the Washington uh, Redskins in 2005. Um, I, w- w- um, they had an opening, uh, looking for a web manager. Um, I was a director at barnesnoble.com managing 20 people, but my future wife was moving to DC. I needed a job that seemed really interesting. And that's how I joined, um, what was then the Redskins, now the commanders as part of their IT department. Um, and I didn't know anything about fixing printers or laptops, but I joined the IT department. I was the manager of the website. And, you know, I thought I, it would get me to DC, try something interesting. And I didn't think I'd be there that long. And it was interesting that um, I got married, uh, had a couple other job offers. And then um, I had joined in November of 05. So right before the 06 season, um, I was leave. I, I was going to leave. And they allowed me to um, go from being manager web applications to being vice president of marketing strategy and customer experience. And that really set me on my path on the, in the sports marketing world. And what it was is Mike Stevens, who was this uh, CMO at the time, then went on to be the CMO of the Giants. Um, oh, you that's know. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, he, and then a gentleman named Terry Bateman and, Mitch Gershman had saw that the power of what was going on in the digital world and they didn't have anyone that was digital native. And they felt that I was someone who wasn't just a tech person. I could actually speak to clients, um, present fairly well. And I literally went from like manager to VP, skipped a lot of rungs, probably upset a lot of people. And that, and then I ended up with an office right across from Dan Snyder's conference room. And and then I started really engaging in the marketing um, space. I then um, ended up staying for five years, and I just kept taking on more responsibility. Took on their e-commerce property because of my Barnes Noble background. Um, grew that about seventy percent, and they gave me retail. Then uh, you know became um, uh, senior vice president of digital strategy. So I left in twenty ten because um, my wife had moved elsewhere. 
and I moved back to New York um, working for Catalyst Public Relations, um, which at the time was a sister company of a PR firm named Taylor, which ultimately got acquired by um, IMG and a part of WME. And I became their SVP of digital and then their chief digital strategist. Um, in that, and I was there for about two years and I was able to build their digital practice, um, working for brands like Subway, Under Armour, Dick Sporting Goods, um, and many other sports brands. And you know, did some really interesting uh, campaigns there, leveraging a lot of what I'd done with the commanders. Um, I then became chief strategy officer for the uh, Washington commanders. Um, I had to move back to DC, um, again, following my wife who um, got um, an opportunity to run the lung transplant program at Hopkins. So um, I was actually working for Catalyst out of DC, you know, 10 years prior to remote, remote uh, working being a thing. And, you know, Catal they allowed me to open up a single person office in DC. And then I guess word got back to the commanders that I was back in town. And then I got a text saying, um, Dan wants you back. And I was like, oh no, a little scared. And then um, that led to conversations and I, um, I didn't think they were serious. So I, I threw out that I wasn't gonna come back for the same role. I needed something different. And like, well, what do you want? And I noticed that um, the 49ers had hired the former um, CFO of YouTube as a chief strategy officer. So I just mm -hmm. said, I want to be the chief strategy officer. And about 18 minutes later, they're like, okay. And, and that led to a very fast paced negotiation. I went back for a second tour of duty as the chief strategy officer of the Washington uh, commanders or then the Redskins, where I oversaw all marketing strategy, marketing platforms, digital, social, mobile platforms, client services, premium ticket sales, marketing, um, retail, and special events. Um, and that was a lot. And it was sort of this great opportunity to, try to sort of be fed to the fire. Um, I did that for about two years, and then I felt it was time to move on. So I resigned at the end of the 2014 season. Um, and then I went to work for an Australian mobile apps and media company called Moco Social Media that was public on the NASDAQ and the ASX. Um, we had a app called Wreck-It that was the official app for kids who played intramural sports in colleges. And it was in 1,280 colleges, including Columbia um, at the time. Also had a running website um, called Runhaven that I ultimately sold to competitor group, which is now part of Ironman. And then a political website that we sold to Media Matters LLC. And then um, went to a firm called uh, KiwiTech, um, a startup incubator dev shop that had over you know 400 startup clients um, i was the evp of enterprise solutions and then got reconnected with some of my former dc sports um uh contacts um working for where i where, where my day job is today uh for the parent company of sears and kmart um uh, shop your way where i'm the chief digital officer there um and in parallel i've, I've been doing angel investing uh through an entity i formed called next Ventures. Um, and then I've been mentoring a few accelerators um, while teaching at Georgetown. So that's... <laughs> I need to take a nap, Joe. 
That's an amazing set of experiences and accomplishments. Tom, think about what the map looks like. Like if you had a drum, <laughs> really? what that looks like. So, anyway. no, Sri Paul, when we ask people this question, it's usually a little bit more uh, consolidated. Although, I think one of the oh, lessons okay. we've learned in doing this pod for eight years is Joe and I like to say no, no one can really map out the path. It, it no. it's highly circumstantial, with mm-hmm. a lot of serendipity. And boy, your definition of that. Um, so. How are, are you staying involved in some capacity be, beyond your day job uh, with um, the sports? But Joe mentioned yeah. the AI part. So tell us how you're still thinking about sports and maybe we can direct the conversation a little bit more in that direction. No, absolutely. So I am an active angel investor um, for um, in sports startups. Um, I also am a mentor for the Techstar Sports Accelerator, the, um, the Comcast Sports Tech Accelerator. Mm-hmm. Um and then I also, you know, have featured um, a series of startups in these virtual demo days that we put on startups connect to other investors. We featured over fifty-five early-stage uh, startups that um, have, you know, some of them have gone on to uh, bigger and better things. Some of them you may know. Some of them gone on to Shark Tank. Some of them have um, have worked with then, you know, the NBA at the league level. ML- I, I've been teaching at Georgetown um, and on um, and um, in, a little more infrequently at GW for the last seven, eight years um, in their sports marketing program. Um, so that's really has keep kept me um, at the sports um, forefront um, because as I'm meeting all these startup founders, mentoring a few, actively investing, um, that's allowed me to really see a lot of trends. Um, and then I've also um, recently... Um, been writing a book around generative AI and sports marketing um, that I plan to be publishing soon. And I've also created my own uh, sports specific uh, chatbot through uh, ChatGPT uh, next week. Um, OpenAI is going to open up a marketplace where you'll start seeing hundreds, if not thousands, of vertically specific chatbots showing up live in the marketplace. Um, and you, you know, I think that's going to really become a game changer in terms of where things are going. So the, that's an interesting point. The marketplace being an environment where folks such as yourself who have the wherewithal to build something um, niche or, or more vertical can essentially present their solution. And I would use that through the app of ChatGPT or how, what is the interface for that? You know, I'm trying to figure that out right now with these... Um, with these vertical um, specific chatbots. So I'll give an example, you know, so there's um, someone who's created one for vegetarian cooking recipes. You can type into it. I'll give you a series of different recommendations for food. I've created one around sports marketing and best practices for um, cold call sales outreach was sort of the product, the concept I was, I was building mine around. Now to access those, you need a paid, chat gpt account i believe um and if you didn't have that paid account you can't access it so when i was trying to give joe for example a preview of what i was sort of working on um you know i had to give him screenshots i think with the marketplace it's going to be a lot easier for people to access these um i'm still working through understanding what the dynamics look like um because it is a fairly new thing um but i think it's going to open up a lot more in terms of canned applications where I think it'll drive a lot more focus. Cause I think right now 
There are a lot of folks that are struggling to understand how generative AI can impact them. And I think similar to the app store um, on the iTunes marketplace 10 years ago, having a marketplace of specific applications, I think is going to start opening up a lot more awareness and ideation and, and, and conversion. Um, so, so two, two questions. One is looking forward, which we can talk about AI and, and AI as a tool in a couple of minutes, but I wanted to take a, a quick step back because you were really at the forefront when you were with the Redskins slash commanders of what we know and what continues to grow in terms of business intelligence that teams do and use. How did, how did that start and kind of like, where do you think that is today and where is it going to go? Where teams, for people who don't know, teams are working with brands and other organizations to say, hey, we've got X number of people in this space. Um, this is th These are their habits. This is what they do. This is how you access them. So what, when somebody says to you business intelligence tied to sports, what did it mean back then and what does it mean now? Yeah, I think back then, um, I think what it what started right was that a lot of sports teams were using um, paying for integrating CRM systems, but they didn't really know how to. But uh, once the systems were in place, no one was using it, and a lot of people didn't know how to leverage the data that was being put into the CRM systems. When you think of like the earlier pioneers, right in um, the sports business intelligence space, you know, Russell, when who's now at the Giants, who used to be at Core, Scott Lewis, right? What the, a lot of them were really using, um, uh, they, the, you know, their function was really taking their CRM data and presenting it so that the other executives could actually have um, build actionable insights, right? And I think it really started with dashboards, visualizations, you know, basic um, views that allowed uh, for. Um, quick snapshots to really make some quick decisions and also probably a lot more depth in someone's say fan base, database, um, really understanding um, the depth of what that um, fan, you know, fan data was, right? At the time, the commanders of the Redskins had a season ticket wait list. It was basically an email database of over half a million names. And it's like the power of that was it could drive everything around the business, you know, retail, not just ticket sales, sponsorship, content it was a really big asset and it's like how could you leverage that and then as social media came about right you could understand more about their interests and their likes and it was like how could you package that to leverage it to drive increased sponsorship sales so i think it started with this idea of dashboards to answer your question into visualizations into insights i think where it's evolved to now is right um the predictive modeling and some of the other things that are now that were more common outside of sports have now come into the sports space. Um, I think sports was sort of lagging in that. Um, in my personal view is that other industries, I think, had had adopted a lot of this faster. And mm -hmm. I think now that's become, I think after COVID, especially you see that being really the common place where now there are these robust business intelligent functions where, where organizations are using their first-party data, really using that across all their businesses. They have their dashboards, they've got their tools, but they're also doing things like predictive modeling to make determinations for pricing and other um, decisions that are core to their business. Got it. 
So related to that, of course, is going back to this AI idea that you're um, not idea this this business that you're you're building. What language model would you would all these niche services use? So let's let's use yours as an example. You mentioned sports marketing, best practice, things like that. What are you? What is it going to be working off of? So, I would assume this more as a proof of you know concept. I think there's a lot of applications. I found. I think what's interesting is before a year ago you needed someone who could program an AI, right? And do machine learning algorithms. And you needed very robust um, development teams. You know, what was really amazing, I was really amazed by when I joined what was then Sears Holding and now Transformco was the level of depth they had in machine learning AI. But it was all these data science and developers and you really needed that robustness to really drive that level of development. What's unique about where, what, chat GPT has done is you don't need to be a, a developer to do this. You can just interface with the chatbot to generate um, these tools, to generate your own visualizations. I, I've, I've, I've used it to generate my own heat maps and you know other imagery. And what it's really done is through conversation, understanding how you can converse with it um, through what's called prompts, you're really just talking to it. And it's generating um, thing um, artifacts or content or elements that people can use, and it's and I think it's going to be really transformative. Um, it's similar to how I think a decade ago people had to learn how to leverage social media or how to communicate on social media. I think there's going to be a learning curve here on how to communicate with the different AI applications. But I think when you look at the the speed that things have evolved in the last 12 months or even the last three months, I think it's going to be really transformed to all aspects of an organization, right? Be it from project basic project management to um, business intelligence to sales to, um, you know, image creation. I've, I've, I've done tests where I can create like artistic renderings of buildings using the AI. So, I mean, I think the applications are going to touch all aspects of the business. And it's similar to how I think when you look at social media now, it went from being this niche where there was like this social media group to now even the most senior executives and owners use social Mm -hmm. media all day, every day. And I think you're going to see that with AI, but I think the adoption curve is going to be exponentially faster because what it's done is you don't have to be a programmer or a data science, or an expert, even just through basic conversation, you can actually get results um, and efficiency using these AI tools. Just a quick follow-up, Joe, if you don't mind. Sure. Ultimately, much of this is going to be based on previously created content in the form of text, images, et cetera. So back to my question, for something like as niche as sports marketing, sports business best practices, ostensibly it's got to be based on stuff that has been articulated in different ways already. So for example, in the case of, let's say sports communications, Joe's written a book or, or is it two Joe? I can't remember. Do you two, one or two books? One, but version number four will be out. Okay. Wow. Nice. Make a note of that, everybody. Um, 
But would it would, for example, your product actually be delving into some of the stuff that's been written, let's say, on, on an academic level about sports? Because we all know there are hundreds and hundreds of books about sports marketing and and stuff like that. In other words, what is it? Let's. I don't know if the right word is scraping, but what is it using to generate these answers? So, I don't want to get beyond my sort of depth, but I think that's sort of been the interesting thing is with over a hundred million people using these tools, the to, the platforms have gone a lot smarter. That is both the benefit and also the risk, right? In that they've done a lot of scraping, they've fed a lot of content, people keep using it, and it's making these um, the AI applications smarter. I think what you're going to find though is enterprises are going to start wanting to buy enterprise licenses of these um, uh, platforms or these learning modules so they can build their own applications where the data is then held in a silo. Um, I think it can use content, but it can also base it off of things like just behavior, right? So like, for example, if you wanted to create an application to write better cold calling email, you don't need to have digested three, four books. That could just be taking best practices for sales, applying it to sports, going through a series of back and forth with the AI where you're training it to get to where it wants to be, and then automating it, right? So I think those, a lot of what we're talking about are applications that are going to be created by the user who can interact with this, where they can take that and then also feed in other best practices that are out there. Um, So, you know, an an example I used um, outside of sports um, is, you know, I've won, uh, I'm a PTA president for my daughter's middle school, and I've created um, a, a, a persona as a grant writer. And I have won three grants beating out hundreds, if not a few thousand schools, um, submitting grants. And what would have taken hours, I've been doing in less than 20 minutes. What wow. I did was I had the AI create the persona of a grant writer to write the grant submission. But then I had a separate channel where I asked the AI to create a panel of judges to critique what the AI did. And in essence, it was critiquing itself and revising itself. And I was just acting as the maestro. Right. Prompting it. Yeah. In that. Right. And that, I think, is really what I found so fascinating, is that I don't have the capabilities to be a grant writer. All I did was ask it to write the grant questions, and I asked, I gave it the rubric and asked it to then create its own virtual panel of judges to critique its submission. And I just, I just sort of facilitated that interaction with itself, and then I just applied it. And I, I, as I said, I won three grants. And anyone that knows me knows my grammar and my writing isn't my strong suit. So it is something that I think can really be transformative in a different way. It's like it doesn't have to have found a million people's books. It had all these interactions. I was able to unlock this persona of a grant writer for something I didn't have, and it helped me. Or if I'm a salesperson it could review my scripts and give me feedback on how to potentially make it better. Or it could take some data and create a visualization because I don't have a business intelligence 
analyst next to me and I need to get something out the door quickly to try to land a sale. So I think that's where the potential can be really amazing for these different sports teams. Because you think of anyone that's worked for a sports team has so many different hats. They're always resource constraint. And this is sort of getting a virtual you know, set of almost unlimited resources that you could give an individual to augment the things that they're missing, which is what I think is really the 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 intriguing thing here. Yeah, so I, I was just thinking of the, I'm just thinking, Joe, of the of the of the big story in AI right now, which is about the the lawsuit of the New York Times against yeah. OpenAI, and I'm just thinking, Shapal, about notwithstanding what you just said, which I which I think makes a ton of sense, is there there is this concern among content owners right now about where this is going to go and that's going to include academic publishing it's going to include uh newspaper publishing magazine archives i mean think think about this so if, if i wanted to build a model that was based on joe favorito's book all his numerous i mean almost you know thousands of written things he's put out into the universe these last however many years i could probably get a joe favorito answer voice perspective quite easily without joe ostensibly getting any credit or certainly not financial um, reward for that it's, it's just a, it's a it's a real it's this is going to be just feels like there's going to be a really big issue i think it will be and i think but it but i also think if you go back you know at this point almost 15 years ago when youtube hit when youtube broke right it changed how people consume video and there were all these rights issues because there were all these illegal videos on YouTube. And that took years before that really sorted itself out. But that didn't start stop a certain handful of organizations being able to leverage that platform right. and really generate substantial revenue, right? You think of um, Whistle Sports, right? Coming back like seven, eight years ago, they were sort of a pioneer in that or now... Yeah. Uh, you know what you're saying over time house of highlights dude perfect you exactly know. right dude perfect. so like i think you see you know and now you look at and now there's all these automations and the rights issues and a lot of that got sorted so i think with the ai there's going to be a lot of that but i also think there's things you that will be totally outside of personal content which is right now have something that can improve your own view. And then you're going to also have, like I said, these enterprise grade func applications that will be locked down, that will be there. I think what it's what it's really done though, it with generative AI versus AI has been around, right? Machine learning's been around. A lot of what we're talking about had been around even three years ago. It's reduced the barrier where the interface is just conversation. And I think that is really the the real amazing thing here, right? Is that you're getting something that is building upon itself. And I think there's going to be a lot of things that have to be worked out. Mm -hmm. But I think this is really, um, you know, you have that with social media. You have that with YouTube. You have that right. with streaming. You have that with MP3s. Oh. Radio. So that, I mean, right. any, any genre. Yeah. So. so I think you're going to have the media side of this. Mm -hmm. But then there's the application side of it. And I think what I find is not enough people are talking about the applic the personal application that people could leverage today that sidesteps all the content and media pieces, but could unlock a lot more efficiency. Yeah. Like a ticket 
You think of like someone's ticket office and you think about the churn within a ticket office. Well, if someone could actually create a chat bot that could help a first time ticket salesperson evaluate their own emails, right? That takes the sales manager's job from not having to do it. The AI is actually helping them improve it. They could take the data of the different emails that have generated the most sales and feed that to try to come up with patterns. Mm -hmm. The speed of that can be very different. That could be done in a way where there isn't really anything proprietary there. You're just taking something, creating a tool where you're teaching, you know, kids that are coming straight out of school or an entry level adult, they don't want to stereotype. And you're trying to give them suggestions to improve, right? That otherwise might just take a lot of trial and error or a lot of human intervention. So I think they're basic applications that could actually drive a lot more efficiency. Because if you can, instead of getting two amazing salespeople out of a group of 10 cohorts that kind of happened today, if now you could elevate the bar for all those ticket sales reps so their conversion rates go up, what does that do to the revenue for that organization. And if you've kept it with the AI, if any of them leave the organization, you now understand their style, how they type, how you have that data pattern. So someone else can replicate that versus right now that you tend to get a lot of churn where someone may have loved what Joe, um, how Joe interacted with them, but your interaction could have been very different, your style. And that just, that along with the losing record might've just mm-hmm. been enough to push the customer away. Interesting. So uh, uh, two quick analogies, because uh, I want to talk about the book and the unique way you wrote the book as well. And, and some of the, a, a little bit of giving into what, what's in it. But so I saw the movie Maestro with, with Bradley Cooper. Um, and I was thinking about some of the conversations that we had had in December. Uh, and, and you just touched on one of the, the more interesting things is really, it sounds like no pun intended, that you can actually and this was actually a I think it was a Steve Jobs quote where you don't want to play an instrument, you want to play the orchestra. And what this sounds like it's doing is giving you those tools to play all these pieces together so you can actually be the conductor, not someone sitting on the sideline hoping that someone could put together the music. The other thing that factors into this, which I thought would be interesting, is on January 1st, Steamboat Willie became into the public domain. And I would imagine that opens up a lot of doors, but I was thinking about like, what about team logos and, and how does all that factor in? And can someone go in and use AI to create something that is already copyrighted? And how would a team kind of deal with that? So, so the, 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 the maestro conductor thing, I think, makes a lot of sense using a tool or using the pieces of the orchestra. Um, but the last part is what I'd love you to touch on is the fear. And how does the fear of slow down people because all they're hearing is, you know, bad stories being generated, inappropriate comments being put out, you know, kids have access to things they couldn't have. So so how do you deal with that when you're going through, you know, the learning process of AI or any other tool? I think so I'm gonna I'm gonna speak to one part and then come and answer the question is it's funny when the Steambook Willie came into the public domain, I actually tried to use the generative AI. And I wanted a photo of Steamboat Willie, because I just come back from India, eating some Indian food. And I generated an image, and I can send it to you. Um, but it wouldn't generate Steamboat Willie. 
they, um, OpenAI actually said, even though it's an open domain, it wouldn't do it. And I kept trying to back into it um, with more generic descriptors. It looks more like Fievel from that old um, <laughs> even Spielberg <laughs> Mouse movie yeah. I at the time um, than it does Steamboat Willie, but it's a great photo. So you're finding that the platforms, just like YouTube, very quickly started putting in algorithms. Like this didn't exist 30 days ago. So the, the speed that the major platforms are coming is also improving. So, cause I think they recognize they have to deal with the, the fear. And I think that was the case early on with social media. I use that example. Cause I think early on, I remember when I went back to the commanders, when it was then the Redskins, you had to create these social media playbooks for athletes, the do's and don'ts. Cause you didn't want them. Some of them, we had an issue on the team where a player had accidentally sent um, a photo. They probably shouldn't have. Right. Cause it was a mistake. So it's like, how do you avoid those type of embarrassments? So I think there's going to have to be policies built by an organization, right. On how to use AI, the do's and don'ts, just like there are sports betting policies right now for teams that have sports books, right. Their employees can't participate. They have to go through training, especially in the ticket office. I know that's a whole compliance thing. So I think you're going to have to create guidelines around that. I think, there is that fear, which is where the guidelines can allow you to test. If you are specific in the use cases, you can you can sort of isolate the use, right, and dip your toes in the water. Um, but I also think at the speed that I I'm seeing the um, the platforms starting to also regulate, I think they're doing that in anticipation of other legislation or other things coming out. Because Steamboat Willie is not copyrighted, yet the platform was very much, you know, adamant that they're not going to generate a Steamboat Willie thing. I'm sure there are other niche AI platforms that are going to take advantage of Steamboat Willie and and unlock it. But the but sort of the player in the space, you know, the bigger ones, you, you're seeing that they're already putting an emphasis for this type of restrictions. Cool, Tom. Do you do you see a future where the leagues? might actually do AI partnerships that would be a combination of traditional uh, sponsored deal along with a whole new category of, of AI content thinking about a league like the NFL with its vast archive of films, photos, social media network, et cetera. I would think so. Right. Cause you think about it, there's no different than when leagues are doing deals with Salesforce. Right. Or with data, you know, data companies and stuff like right. that. Yeah. Data, so I think, but again, I think, a league like that's going to want to, the NFL historically has always been one to test small before they do anything. Then they usually go big, right? When they did the Twitter deal versus other teams, other leagues that gone on Twitter or other things. But I think I do see a situation where as, as the AI companies start monetizing more, they have more revenue, they're going to be looking for opportunities. And I think the fact that now, OpenAI, uh, I don't want to just use them. They're not the only player in the space, but just use them as an example, because ChatGPT, I think, is just the most commonly assumed view. They now sell enterprise licenses. So in theory, a, a leak is going to could get an enterprise license, but they may want to push for the sponsorship, right? So they're not, that tends to always be the play. Right. Um, you know, um, and you saw that with different BI platforms early on, right? S S um, SAP versus you know, SaaS versus, you know, Salesforce. So I think, I definitely do think there is going to be something there. I think 
I, I, because the IP rights are clear, they may want to, um, I think you'll see it's similar to YouTube. I think it's a great example. Again, how long did it take before teams started doing the sponsorship or leagues did the sponsorship deals with YouTube, right? There was restrictions in, at least with the NFL, when I was there where teams couldn't do deals right. with YouTube or Facebook and, and MLB you, stayed off for years. Right. And you couldn't post. Right. Teams were actually forbidden. And it was until the leagues could get their arms around it. And then the league would create a league deal. And then the teams would be encouraged to go. And I, so I, I think there is precedent here. And I don't see AI really being much different than kind of the different social media platforms, where usually when there's a new one that's about take, that's taking off really quickly, leagues come in and say, hey, don't go there yet. We're working on it, you know, and I think I'm sure that there's that type of dialogue going on. Cool. Um, in the last couple of minutes that we have before we get to our questions, lean forward and tell us about the book. And, and I want you to tell Tom how you wrote the book, too, because it's really interesting. And and the tools that you use to really create what is probably the first primer for sports in, in AI. Um, yeah, so I wrote the book. um using a couple different uh, generative AI platforms, chat, a chat GPT, Claude. And I, I was really intrigued by this idea of who knows AI better than the AI platform itself. And I wanted to basically create a book. So everything from the outline to the chapters, it was something where I started, you know, working with the different AI platforms saying, what do you think would be the right outline? And then I would compare it to another AI platform that would come back with feedback Then I'd go back to the other. And that iteration was sort of how I started building the bones of this book. Um, as I said, I, I'm not the greatest writer in terms of grammar and stuff. So I did hire a ghostwriter to clean up some of it at the end, but I used, I felt like, there's going to be a lot, I had seen a lot of articles and it was very clear to me that there were a lot of people that were writing about AI and sports that had never really used the applications. And I wanted to bring something that both spoke to like the history, the theory, but also be very practical. And I felt like this idea of generative AI would be different than, like I said, AI has been around for a long time in a lot of depth. So it was sort of a, my own like experiment, like, well, what would know, the AI, who should know the most about AI and sports market than the AI platforms itself. So using them to really drive it. And then even this idea of prompts, I would write prompts, but I would ask the AI to critique them and say, how would you, you know, how would you write it better? Because again, they're the ones con consuming it. So I had created a persona. I'd write, I would create different personas. It would take me a few hours for different tasks, but I would create a, I created a persona where the AI would tell me what it thought of like this prompt. And it would be like, how can you write a, an email to sell NBA tickets? Right. And it would be, it would, it would evaluate it and say, this is how we could make it better. And I'd go through three, four iterations of making it better. And then I would have it create a virtual panel of experts of fake, um, ticket sales managers 
to then weigh, rate it from one to 10. And they would give their spin on it based off other people content that they may have found on sports marketing, best practices. And that would then add another layer in. And then I would take the output of both the AI generated prompt and this virtual panel of ticket experts to then place into my content. Hopefully that made sense. Yep. Yep. So I want to see the author credits when this book comes out. (laughs) So you're going to do, you're going to do it as an old fashioned book, like an actual Mm -hmm. print book. That that's the idea right now. Which of course shows the ultimate irony as we're talking about this advanced technology. Um, Wow. That's really super interesting. When do you think it'll come out? Um, you know, I need to just finish the final edit. The problem's been I wrote it back in the summer when I was in in Italy um, uh, for a family vacation. My um, I had a lot of time. Um, my daughter was in a competition, and a lot of it's changed. So it, I'm dealing with how to like it, it keeps getting out of date. So I think I just need to finish um, the the submission criteria and just get it out. And then and then work on the next one because I think I'm running into my I'm being my own crit- worst critique on this one. Yep, yep, I agree. Um, Tom, you have any any final questions before we just get to one last yeah one last one if, if, we, if you have time. Um, Shripal, how how much more should leagues and teams get into the media business? I mean, that's been the the, the biggest change in our careers to see how everything was through third party years ago, like when I started at the NFL in the 90s, and then with the introduction of the proprietary networks, with the introduction of websites, social media accounts, streaming applications, dedicated applications, streaming services, the list goes on. They're deep into this right now, and you're seeing a really interesting dynamic play out. Let's say, use the example of RSNs, where some people think teams should be doing these direct-to-consumer products. Other, uh, there's a lot of frustration among fans. There's a lot of confusion about platforms, et cetera, et cetera. What's your ta- What's your thought about that as we move deeper into this decade? I think, for a lot of the reasons where AI is going, I think it's very smart for a team to go deeper as a media entity because it's going to allow them to then really control their rights and content. Right, the more that they own all aspects of it, the more they're going to have control of distribution. And I think because you now have some of these threats to the different models, I think I think there's something you said about that. I do think, though, a lot of organizations aren't equipped financially or however to really deliver the content in a best-in-class way. Mm-hmm. So that's really the dichotomy here, is that, right, you think about it. I remember... 10 years ago, because, you know, um, the um, NBC, um, Monumental Sports, right, which was the NBC Sports DC, which used to be Comcast Sportsnet. We at the commanders used to, they were a sponsor. They used to, we'd we'd do a daily TV show. They would, you know, produce games. And there was a huge difference. Like we had one of the more robust multimedia divisions in the NFL, but the our production capabilities and theirs, there was a huge gap. And they really could do a lot in terms of production quality that we as an organization couldn't. And I think the challenge is going to be like Ted and Monty Mel has done a really phenomenal job is 
they now own that entity. So they can provide that level of production capabilities for their own properties, right? And they've now sort of leveled up their own in-house streams than they did say two years ago. And I think that's going to be the weird, the conundrum is like, not everyone's going to be able to afford that. So how do they get to that point? But I do think an organization needs to own their content, right? Because I think with the threat of AI, you know, in that concept of a threat, you really want to own all aspects of the production, distribution, and rights. Because the more you you have it and you're not, then you can really be in control, which I think is going to really be key, um, you know, in unlocking the value for folks as well. Right. And more first-party data, if you, if you go exactly. in that direction, which obviously is important because so much of the third-party data data through the platforms has been so uh, dominant, yeah. really, when you, in, in the totality of... of um, direct-to-consumer data, uh, it's limited. It has been limited because of the and nature think, of the distribution. Because I think that's also a huge unlock. You think of like what Amazon's doing with um, the Thursday and the Black Friday, Thursday Night Football, the Black Friday games, how they could really use the data real time to drive you know, their advertisers straight into shopping. To some degree, if you could be that locally with your sponsors and really be able to use that first-party data to drive actionable insights, that's only going to help those um, teams unlock more local revenue opportunity. So I do think there's a huge opportunity there. Cool. Um, last few questions, uh, which I prompted you about. You can't say where you get your information from. You can't say, oh, I get it from a chatbot or I get it from AI. Uh, to keep up with everything that you're looking at personally and professionally, are there podcasts you listen to, newsletters you sign up to, places you always go for information? That's number one. And number two is, um, for the people who are job changers or new to careers who come along, what's the advice you give them? And then we'll get to uh, the beautiful stuff on your in your unique collection for what's on your shelf. Sure. So I um, listen to, you know, I read um, probably more now than even before because I'm, you know, to stay connected, you know, all the major sports media you know, sites, right, between SBJ, Front Office Sports, Sportico, the Associate Podcast. I use LinkedIn to really stay on top. Um, mm. I have, it's weird, I subscribe to probably an insane number of newsletters. I don't probably read them on my emails, but what it's done is it, my LinkedIn feed, because of that, pushes a lot of content to me. So I found that to be really effective. Um, so that is... Um, how I keep my information right. I, 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 I try to have a mix of sports, but also non-sports um, folks to read from. Cause I, I found when I was at the commanders, the, the people that I met that 10 years later, you look at that, that are now these amazing execs, rock star and lock billions of dollars in value were my vendors, right? I used to work with a guy like Mike Lazaro from buddy media and you look, he sold his company for 800 million. Um, Tristan Walker, at Foursquare, who then became CEO of Bevel, et cetera. So I tried, I've always looked at that. Going to the next part of the question, I, when I teach at Georgetown, I always, um, there's two people I always encourage them to look into is Chris Freilich and a guy named Ty Amad Taylor. And they publish a lot of um, great content on the art of how to ask for an email intro, how to do the follow-up. Um, Chris Freilich actually had a masterclass on that. He's been published in Forbes and Fast Company. Um, how to really 
um, do that in terms of networking? Because I think in reality is people want to help. And I so I always tell them that. So, but you want to, someone said it to me actually this morning, right? You want to make it as easy as possible for someone to help you. So I think those are two people that I use, to, that I still follow and read, go back to sometimes for my own personal decision-making when I need an intro. What I found is in my career path, which is really disjointed, but it's based off a common element is I was able to excel because I, I had something that no one else had at the time. And I always try to tell people if you're trying to transition, you know, um, say you're trying to get into sports. Um, if you right now have a data science and AI background, you're going to bring a lot to the table that someone else didn't, right? Or if you were native, what I used to tell a couple of years ago, if you were really proficient in Snapchat and TikTok and some of the emerging platforms, as you go to work for, you know, a sports organization, that's a great way to enter. Because even if you're going in for client services, the fact that you know these social platforms that the other folks don't, that can give you an edge. Um, so I always view like, how can you bring something new to the table? I've taken a lot of what I've learned in sports and brought it out of sports. And I think the same can be said in reverse, right? I think customer success is another great example. There's a lot that's gone on um, outside of sports and customer success um, into a multi-billion dollar industry. I don't think all of that has seeped into sports yet. And I think the people that will do that are going to be the next sort of CROs down the road. Cause I think that's the next unlocked opportunity. So I do think a lot of that can be there. And then your last question, sorry, is what's on my shelf. Yeah, we're so so we, people can't see the video, but you've got some intriguing things behind you on the wall. When people say like, what's the, the quintessential thing that you value the most, uh, the most unique, what is it? So I have, um, so I went to UMass Amherst. And so one of the things I have that someone gave me is I have a basketball um, uh, from Kentucky the year John Wall and five players got drafted in the NBA in the first round with Coach mm -hmm. Cal, the big signature. And that means a lot to me because I used to be that CS major tutoring um, back when not all players had their own computers. I would have then the UMass basketball players come and use my best. So that one has a lot of sentimental value. I have um, some game-used footballs and helmets from my time at the Redskins that um, Sam Huff and Sonny, Sonny Jurgensen have signed that are probably re very unique that no one could ever re reproduce. Um, so those mean a lot to me. Um, I am a diehard Red Sox fan, which is why I have the uh, it, it video. So um, I have a lot of Red Sox memorabilia. So, you know, but I, I have a lot of... Um, those are just a couple of examples. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, I have a football from Jerome Bettis from a campaign we did for Dick Sporting Goods. That always made a, meant a lot to me because um, we had done a we had done a cause marketing campaign to try to get a million kids their baseline concussion test back in 2011. No one talked about concussions, so you know that 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 whole campaign meant a lot to me. So you know I have a lot of memorabilia tied to things that are. Um, that I've done that are just very sentimental. Cool. Tom, you want to uh, wrap us up? Yeah, I got Chappelle. Thanks. That's really yeah. fascinating. Um, I don't even know. I don't even know what the next question would be. 
So, but well, you know. well, Joe, that's why you would use AI. You would yeah, talk right, exactly. We should have done that. AI. Actually, we should have I mean, gone into AI and said, "What's the first question we should ask Sherpal Shaw and see what they would have given?" Maybe us. that's how we should do the podcast going forward. Why? Yeah. Why actually? Yeah. Like, I've got a lot of notes here and stuff, but I, I guess I'm wasting my time. But no, that seriously, um, you um, you opened my eyes to some aspects of this that I hadn't thought about, and I, I'm now prepared to predict Joe since it's the first show of 2024 that in 2024, we will see the first major AI sponsorship in pro sports. I kind of been thinking about this the last few months, mm -hmm. but I think one day we're going to wake up and say, Google Gemini named the official AI partner of the National Football League or something like that. Feels like this is just accelerating too fast and there's so much potential. And by the way, since most of the AI big businesses are controlled by trillion and multi-trillion dollar companies, those are going to be big deals. So I'd love to be a fly on the wall in those conference room where that's getting discussed right now. Anyway, just great convo. I'm looking forward, Shapal, to the book coming out in, in um, I suppose, sometime this year. I think it's going to be a must read for anybody who wants to stay on top of it. I think you gave really good advice about trying to stand out with something that you actually know. And one of the things I've said to my students is that we're at, we're at a moment in time right now with AI where kind of what, what I went through and Joe went through in the 90s with the internet, it's it's kind of a version of that right now. So just open your mind, discuss, experiment to your point, like actually try it, that's key. And then if you know more than the other candidates when you're applying for a job and you're able to demonstrate that, there's your ticket. So that's a good perspective. Thank you for that. Um, where can folks find you if they want to reach out or check out your work? The real um, you, by the way, not 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 an avatar or or something we yeah. find online. So. I mean, you you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, is probably the easiest. I, I have you know I'm on Twitter, Instagram as well. Um, you know, so uh, I'm pretty accessible. Okay. Well, thank you again on behalf of the program and and Joe it was a great conversation. Yep. Really wonderful. Um, and good luck in, during 2024. Um, Joe, anything else before I nope. say goodbye? Okay. Well, we appreciate everybody listening. And by the way, I will say again, we've said this, we say this from time to time, but if anybody has any thoughts about a topic or specific guests, we're all ears and we're really easy to find. And uh, we appreciate you listening. We're looking forward to an exciting year of new conversations such as this, and we'll see you at the next one.